Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 32. Last week, I covered the places of Kabul and Beth Dagan, both found in the territory of Asher. I also touched on what's known about the regional deity Dagon, referred to in the Old Testament and for whom Beth Dagon was named. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in the territory of Asher and pressing forward through to the territory of Naphtali. And with that, let's get started. First up should be the place of Tel Rehov. Superficially, this would seem the same as the place of Rehob, identified by Joshua as being on the border of Asher. But Rehov isn't the same place as that city, so I'll keep moving along. Next is Kana, which in Hebrew means reeds, as in the plants that tend to grow in marshes. There are actually two places with this name in Joshua. One is on the border between Ephraim and Manasseh, and the other on the border of Asher. Given the name, they are both likely streams for these borders. The one in Asher is also likely a town named for the stream. This town has been linked to the village of Ain Kana, sometimes just Kana, about 7 miles, 11 kilometers southeast of Tyre, in the modern Lebanon, which roughly places it in the region known as Upper Galilee. While this isn't really notable enough to elicit discussion in this part of the podcast, there is one little tidbit that is. Located about a mile north of the town are huge stone ruins, all laying about, seemingly tipped over. Built into the side of a nearby ravine are the figures of men, women, and children, essentially cut in the face of the rock and thought to be of Phoenician origin, meaning the Sea Peoples, and possibly dating to the period when the Israelites arrived back from their wanderings. But that isn't why I'm covering it, either. That comes from the New Testament, and I'll get to it in a minute. There's really nothing terribly notable about the history of this small town, as it follows the region in general, one I'm certain you're very familiar with by now. So, I'll just fast forward to the Ottomans and their revealing tax records. The usual agricultural products were taxed, including beehives, and grapes likely used for wine, along with olives and figs, ripe for a party. Hold on to that just for a minute. By the late 19th century, the town had close to a thousand residents, sizable for that time and in the region. It was noted as being on the summit of a hill with large, well-built houses and a population of both Christians and Muslims. But that, too, isn't why I'm covering it. In the Gospel of John, in its second chapter, Jesus is said to have performed his first miracle, the one where he turned water into wine at Cana in Galilee. Some Christians, especially Lebanese Christians, believe Cana to have been the actual location of this event. And to be clear, all three translations I use for the podcast say that the event occurred at Cana in Galilee. Twice the city is mentioned in this specific text. This belief was held by the Roman historian Eusebius in his 4th century writings. But there are other traditions from a couple hundred years later that Cana was a different place, 
this one near the modern village of Kafarkana, about four miles, seven kilometers northeast of Nazareth, or perhaps the nearby Kurbitkana. Both of these seem to have more support by modern researchers. There isn't much to add from the outside record except for natural caves along with the rock-dug varieties in the Kana located in Asher. Many of these have cave art and inscriptions that date to the general period of the Canaanites. Some believe that the water-into-wine wedding found in John occurred in one of these caves, but there's nothing in the outside record or text that has anything close to supporting evidence. The only other thing of note is the tomb of King Haram of Tyre, the same Haram I covered last week. His tomb can be found on the outskirts of the town and in the neighboring village of Hanaway. Tyre was also located in the territory of Asher, so that the king's tomb was found in a nearby village isn't surprising. And that's it for Kana. Next up from Asher is Aixib listed as a city fully in Asher's territory. It's modernly the city of Aixiv and found on the Mediterranean coast. As the crow flies, it's only three miles, six kilometers, from the border of Israel with Lebanon. Biblical references are sparse, with this one and another in Joshua. There's also a mention in Judges, but only telling us that Asher didn't drive out the Canaanites who lived there. The writings of Micah mention it, but only reinforcing what's found in Joshua. Reading that, the houses of Aixib shall be a deception to the kings of Israel. Eventually, David would apparently conquer it, and Solomon would give it to Haram, just like several other cities found in Asher. And that's it in the text. Luckily for us, the outside record is a bit more telling. The city was located on the road between the ports of Acre and Tyre, and while it was on the coast, it was built on a tell in the coastal plain. Archaeological digs at the site have uncovered a fortified Canaanite city dating to the 2nd millennium BC. The name of the city, including the one listed in Joshua, is the Canaanite name. The early 1st millennium ruins show the presence of Phoenicians, which are likely the same people that Asher could not drive out. Not only can the little known from written records from this period be found in the Old Testament, but also in Assyrian records. The archaeological record shows a nearly complete destruction of the city, likely of a violent nature, sometime in the Middle Bronze Age. It was rebuilt and then made into what amounts to a distant suburb of the port of Acre, located just down the coast. The Phoenicians fortified the city with massive defensive structures. Its walls were some 15 feet, four and a half meters high, and served to protect the city and the nearby port. On both sides of these walls were rivers that offered additional protection from invading forces. On the outside of the wall, they built a moat that connected the two rivers and offered an additional barrier. But it wasn't enough as the record shows the city was destroyed sometime in the Late Bronze Age, probably around the time the Israelites showed up, though it could have been earlier with the invading Sea Peoples. And considering what was recorded in the Old Testament, the Sea Peoples seemed like the most likely candidates, at least to me. 
By about 1000 BC, Exiv was prosperous in a fortified Phoenician town. Between the 10th and 6th centuries BC, it appears to have been affluent, with public buildings and tombs adorned with Phoenician inscriptions. This too aligns with the Old Testament, with the Israelites not driving out the Phoenicians. Like much of the region, it would be conquered by the Assyrian Empire in 701 BC. The city was listed in the Assyrian leader's Sennacherib's history, though it remained a Phoenician city. The Assyrians would remain in control until between the 5th and 4th centuries BC, as inscriptions in their language appear that late. After that, though, they seem to have been absorbed into the larger regional culture. This aligns with when Alexander conquered the region and forced Greek culture on the residents, including the language. The Greeks would place it under the control of the nearby port city of Acre. Overall, the town would experience prosperity and declines, all in the rather predictable cycles from the Old Testament period through the Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, and into the Greek era. When the Romans controlled the region, Exib was little more than a roadside town. This situation would remain through the period of Christ, and even into the 4th century, when an unnamed Bordeaux pilgrim mentions it in his writings thought to date to 333 and 334 AD. Josephus mentioned a city with an exceedingly similar name and located at the same place. Obviously the same city. Eusebius would do the same. After this, nothing more can be found in the outside record, even through the early Muslim period. That changed with the arrival of the Crusaders who built a new village with the castle on the tell. This was after the fall of Acre. In 1232, the city was the site of the Battle of Casal Imbert, fought between various factions of German and French crusaders as part of what's known as the War of the Lombards. I've never mentioned it before, but it wasn't just the crusaders versus the Muslims. The crusaders fought amongst themselves, as did the Muslims. Of course, and especially when viewed through the lens of history, the Crusaders' tenure was relatively short. With the return of the Muslims, they would build a rather small village on the Tell, repurposing the stones from the destroyed Crusader castle, and the village remained there through the Ottomans. Their tax records were similar to the others in the region I've recently covered, but included a first, at least recently and that's a tax on water buffalo. Later crops would include the usual, and other new things such as figs, mulberries, bananas, citrus, and pomegranates. And fish. Many fish. To the point that in the early 19th century, the small town boasted an annual catch that averaged around 18 U.S. tons, about 16 metric. The Ottomans lasted until the British Mandate, officially arriving in the region in 1922, though this was a few years after World War I, when this part of the region was in flux between the French and the British. After a few decades, it would become part of the nation of Israel. In 1946, while still part of the British Mandate, the Jewish resistance movement attempted to blow up a railroad bridge over the creek in Aixiv, in an operation known as the Night of the Bridges. 
in this action, and as part of the Jewish insurgency in Palestine, the goal was to destroy 11 bridges linking mandatory Palestine to the neighboring countries of Lebanon, Syria, Transjordan, and Egypt, in order to interrupt the transportation routes used by the British Army. Twelve days later, partly in response to the bridge bombings, the British launched what they named Operation Agatha, with the primary goal to suppress the state of anarchy in Palestine by capturing the most militant Zionist Jews. As part of this surprise action, just under 3,000 Jews were arrested, including the senior leadership of Haganah, the Zionist paramilitary organization. Shortly afterwards, and during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, the village was abandoned again. Remnants of the ancient Aixiv, now known as Tel Aixiv, are located on a sandstone mound between the two streams. An ancient port was positioned on the coast, with another port less than half a mile to the south. Phoenicians and a fishing industry should make the both of these obvious. And that's it for Aixiv. Moving along. Which gets me to the end of the territory assigned by lot to Asher, and on to Naphtali. The first place I'm covering from Naphtali's territory is the place of Zanana. Well, I'm not covering just that place, but something very specific in it. Joshua 19 tells us part of the tribe's boundary ran from the yoke in Zanana. What I find curious about this part of the text is that it's extremely geographically specific. Other boundaries ran from this city to that, along this wadi or river, and ended in a sea or wilderness. But this part of that boundary ran to a specific tree. The other notable part was that either the tree was distinct enough from the other oaks in the area that everyone knew which one was the oak, or it was the only oak in the area. Unless the acorn that sprouted it was imported, it would have to be a tree that was distinct enough. But we're never really told. The only other thing worth mentioning is that this is the only place in the entirety of the Bible that Zananum is mentioned, so there isn't another origin story for that tree. At least not directly. There are other oaks, the Oak of Mora, the Oaks of Mamre, an oak near Shechem, one below Bethel, and several more. One of these could be the same as the one on Naphtali's boundary, but that is never mentioned, and the locations don't line up. There are a few that interpret the ancient Hebrew differently, and instead read it as the plain of Zananim. There's what may be the same place mentioned in Judges 4 where we're told the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had encamped as far away as Elon Bezzananim, which is near Kedesh. Some think this is the same place where the oak was located, while others think it was a different place entirely. But there's a potential different interpretation. The name is very similar to the Hebrew word that translates to either wanderings or the unloading of tents. This is thought to refer to tent-dwelling nomads who lived in the region. And there's another potential translation, this one a bit more involved. The Hebrew source text reads, A word I'll spare you. Both the Septuagint and the Talmud 
have the name preceded by the letter B, or at least what translates to that letter. And when the Hebrew is read with this, it translates to the phrase, unto the oak of Bitzazanim. And this may be the same place as the ruins of Besom, about halfway between Tiberias and Mount Tabor. As for these ruins, I could find nothing in the outside record about them, which is also true for the place without the preceding B, Zanaunel. So the only mentions of either is in the text of the Old Testament, which allows me to move along. A city found in Naphtali is named Adama, and like the previous place, this is its only mentioned in the Bible. The name may translate to the pass, as in a mountain pass, and in this case the pass of Adami. Throughout history, there's been a very small debate about alternate translations, but they don't really add anything to the understanding of the place. Instead, the reason I'm covering it is it's been tentatively identified as the village of Damia. This place was located some five miles, eight kilometers west of Tiberias, which, as the name gives away, wasn't established until the Romans controlled the region over 1,000 years later. But, at least in this case, the place is used merely as a landmark. Adama was clearly around when the territory was assigned to Naphtali. At the time, Demia had a low wall, sometimes called a fence. It's also possible that the city was listed under a different name in the annals of Thutmose III at his temple at Karnak. There is another city within the territory named Iron. And this is curious, as the territory was allocated during the Bronze Age, long before the discovery of iron smelting. What does this mean? There are two potential ways to thread the needle. The first is the place was called something different when the territory was divided up, but the name had been converted when the book of Joshua was written. The other is that there was a natural source of iron at the site, like a meteorite. This wasn't unheard of in the era. Remember that King Tut, who ruled about a century before the Exodus, so nearly 200 years before Joshua was written, he was entombed with a dagger made from iron sourced from a meteorite. There's nothing about the city in the outside record. Just after iron is a place called Migdal El. Migdal, when found without the suffix, in ancient Hebrew translates to either tower or fortified land. In the El, that was one of the words for God. So in this case, it was potentially the Tower of God. Some believe that Mary Magdalene was from this place, but that's based solely on her name indicating she was from a place named Migdol, and the assumption that Migdol El was the only place in the region with the name. There were other Migdols mentioned in the text, but those were in Egypt, and she wasn't likely from that far away. So maybe this Mary was from Migdol El. Other than that, nothing more is known about this place, which is really disappointing for a place named the Tower of God. And that's it for Naphtali. And though in the beginning of this episode I didn't say it, I have made it all the way to the territory of Dan, and the first city mentioned in their territory was Zora. 
One of the more interesting things about this place is that it may translate to the place of wasp. Lovely. I bet Dan felt like they won the territorial lottery with that allocation. At some point in the future, it probably came under the control of Judah, and considering that Dan shared a short border with that tribe, it certainly can be rationalized. Zora was located on the crest of a hill, maybe a tell, overlooking the valley of Sorek, almost 1,200 feet, 350 meters above sea level. And the sea, in this case, is the Mediterranean, which wasn't terribly far away, and on the west border of the tribe. The town would later be fortified by King Rehoboam in the 10th century BC, along with several other cities in Judah and Benjamin. Zora is thought to be at the nearly modern city of Sara, about 14 miles, 23 kilometers west of Jerusalem. All of that is well and good, and not what the city is known for. Instead, Samson was recorded as being born in Zora and buried somewhere between Zora and Eshtile in the tomb of his father. Josephus would record the place as a village called Sarasate. In the outside record, Zora was mentioned along with Ajalin in the Amarna letters, after both of the cities were attacked by the Apiru. As a reminder, the Apiru were also known as the Habiru. Whichever name you choose to go with, it typically referred to people who were considered dusty or dirty. Not very flattering. The name was used in the late 2nd millennium BC, and not just for the Amarna letters, They are also mentioned in other textual sources throughout the Fertile Crescent for people also described as rebels, outlaws, raiders, mercenaries, bowmen, servants, slaves, and laborers. Probably anyone nomadic who doesn't look like us. In what may only be a coincidence, Zara is also the name of an Egyptian sun god. If it's not coincidental, It may show that the Canaanites who lived in Ajalon while the Egyptians controlled the region and before the Israelites arrived back, they may have worshipped the sun and that deity was made part of the greater Egyptian pantheon. Maybe. Back in Zora, and like I mentioned earlier, the nearly modern Palestinian village of Sara was located in the reputed location of the ancient town. Like many places in the region, Sara was abandoned during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War as fighting moved from village to village. About 75 years before that, the hill where the village was located was described as bare and white, at least geologically and geographically. There were olive groves north of the village. There was also a hewn stone altar found near the village. Most of the area is now covered by a forest of pine trees. And that's Zora. I'll wrap up this episode with Eshtail, also within the territorial bounds of Dan and close to their border with Judah. It was just under four miles, six kilometers north of Beth Shemesh. Earlier in Joshua, it was mentioned as being in the plain. In reality, it straddled the hill country in the plain. This place was mentioned a handful of times in the Old Testament narrative and usually paired up with Zora, like as the burial place of Samson, said to be between Zora and Eshtile, 
Or in Judges 18, when the Danites sent five men from their clan, from Zorah and Eshtile, to spy out the land and to explore it. I'll get to what all of that was about at a later date. It was also mentioned in 1 Chronicles in a long list of the descendants of various men, including her. Though, this entire chapter was devoted to the descendants of Judah, and Dan was the brother of Judah, not the son. My interpretation of this is that this Zorah was not necessarily from the city with the same name, or at some point after the tribes received their allocations, the name of the city changed. I'm going to fall back on one of my overriding philosophies about conflicting information in the Old Testament. It has little to nothing to do with the Christian faith. In the outside record, uncovered artifacts date as far back as about 8000 BC, when the first permanent settlers decided to stay put and give up the nomadic lifestyle. There were other buildings, not quite as old, that had what was termed an industrial plaster floor. What is meant by this is that the floor was manufactured elsewhere. In this case, in a building that burned limestone rocks and prepared the plaster. Unlike the other places in this episode, the modern city of the same name was founded at the site after the 1948 Arab-Israeli War as a sort of planned community. The first residents were Jewish immigrants from Yemen who settled there in December 1949. Also at the city, the Jewish National Fund established a plant nursery to supply saplings for the various forests that were planted. And that's it for Eshtile, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the people, places, and things found in the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.